Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning, everybody. Here we go. That was better than Marcus's. Um, <laughs> if I had... If I have not had the chance to meet you guys yet, uh, my name is Eric. I am a pastor in training here at City Church. Um, So I would love, like Marcus said, to have the chance to meet you uh, if I have not had that opportunity. Um, If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 12. We're going to be there in just a minute. Um, So if you were here about a month and a half ago, give or take, um, the last time that I was supposed to teach, uh, rest assured, I plan on making it through this, this teaching. <clears throat> so for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, I was not feeling very well uh, about a month and a half ago, but I, uh, I thought I could power through, um, and thought being the key word. Uh, so I actually told Kent, like right before I got up on stage, I was like, hey, I don't feel really good, you may have to teach this. And he said, what? <laughs> And I said, you probably won't have to, but it'll be fine. So I got up on stage, I introduced myself, and then I said, you know what? Nope, Kent has to finish this. And I ran off stage and I threw up. So it was a good time. Yeah, so if you were here and, uh, and you think it's funny, you have permission to laugh because it's funny now. It was, it was not funny at the time, not for me, but it, it's funny now. But we're not going to have a repeat, all right? Hopefully, right? I took allergy pills and drank a lot of water, all that good stuff. So I should be good. Um, So as a reminder, or as an introduction, if this is the first time you've been here in a while, we are coming to the end of chapter 12 uh, in our kind of journey through the gospel according to Matthew. So it's a really long book. We're breaking it up into some different sections, and uh, we are coming to the end of chapter 12. So we've been talking through some of the different people that Jesus encountered on his ministry uh, as he was going from town to town teaching, um, and we've been talking about some of the ways that these people have been responding to him. Um, and in case you have not noticed, several people are not responding well at all, right? Um, I mean, specifically the religious leaders of the time. Kent just talked uh, a couple weeks ago that these religious leaders' response to, uh, to seeing him going around helping people and healing people was to start a plan to kill him, right? So uh, here's a, a pro tip for you. Um, if someone in response to something that you are doing uh, starts a plan to murder you, it's a pretty good indication they don't love what you're doing, right? So... They aren't responding super well to what Jesus is doing. Um, so at this point in Matthew, we see Jesus interacting again with, uh, with some of these Pharisees and, and leaders, some of his biggest fans, right? Um, so at face value, I will say, uh, if you have not read through this passage a lot or you're not familiar with this passage, I, would, I just want to acknowledge that several things that came up in what we just read and that we're going to talk through today may seem a little bit weird or a little bit random to us, but I promise that it makes sense and I promise that Jesus knew what he was doing and knew what he was talking about, right? And also, he, he lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world in a society that uh, had traditions that were completely different from our context, 
right? That's, it's just not the way that we do things. So uh, some of it obviously is gonna seem weird without that context. Just like uh, it, our context wouldn't make any sense to somebody back then, right? Imagine, imagine going to biblical times and telling somebody like, yeah, later I'm gonna be on an app on my phone and I'm gonna like watch people dance. Like that's, that's weird without context, right? On, it's a little weird with context as well, but we'll just, Context is important, right? So we're gonna look through this with the context of the time, um, and hopefully we'll be able to understand more of what's going on. So we're gonna go through the whole passage, we're gonna break it up into some smaller pieces so we can figure out exactly what is going on. So before we get started, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us. Hopefully you guys are all at Matthew 12 in your Bibles, um, and you can follow along, but uh, pray with me before we start. Uh, dear God, I thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for everyone that you have brought here uh, to hear from your word. I just pray that um, everyone would have ears to hear what it is you have to say to them um, and that, that you would be able to, to speak through me and through your spirit here um, in, in everyone's, everyone's hearts and minds this morning. I just pray for openness and that we would be receptive to what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so I'm going to spare you reading all of it in one big chunk again, because it's a lot of verses, but like I said, we'll break it up. Um, but it's a pretty simple verse, right? Uh, we've got people asking Jesus for a sign, pretty direct denial to do that, right? Some insults thrown in there, uh, something about Jonah and a queen and a haunted house, right? It's straightforward. It's pretty good. Um, you know, the haunted house is just top everything else off because it wasn't confusing enough uh, at the beginning. Um, like I said, at face value, this might seem uh, a little jumpy or a little scattered or kind of confusing as to why all of this is in there. But the author of the book put them in there like he did for a reason, right? All of it ties together. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. So we're going to start at the very beginning of our passage. Um, we see a group of people interacting with Jesus in verse 38. So who are they? The Pharisees, thank you. I actually, I'm seeing if I can get people to respond when I ask questions. You'll know if it's rhetorical, I promise. Um, so Pharisees and teachers of the law, right? Basically uh, religious leaders and Bible scholars at the time. Um, so they come to Jesus and they ask him for what? A sign, you guys are getting so good at this. No one ever responds, I'm trying to do it. Marcus, Marcus does it and everybody responds and nobody ever. <laughs> Nobody ever does it when I do it. Um, okay, so you might be thinking, uh, based on this interaction, at first glance, it's like, all right, so a group of religious people are asking a guy who's making some really big claims about himself uh, for a sign to back it up, right? That feels, that feels pretty reasonable, I think. After all, Jesus has been doing signs for other people. Uh, he's, been, he's been going from town to town doing this fairly regularly up until this point. So what's Jesus' response? Yeah, sure. I thought you guys never ask. Been waiting for this. No, no, that's not what he says. Right out of the gate, Jesus comes out with, you wicked and adulterous generation. Right? So out of, out of context and not really knowing what's going on, you might see that and go, well, pump the brakes a little bit, Jesus. That's a, that's a lot. Uh, but we're not going to look at it out of context, right? We talked about that just a minute ago. No, we've been, we've been getting context for this interaction all the way through the book of Matthew um, as we've been studying through it, right? This is not Jesus' first interaction with this same group of Pharisees in this, in this book. This isn't even his first interaction with them in this chapter, right? So he's got, he's got some pretty recent history with these guys. 
Um, if, if you remember, the beginning of this chapter, chapter 12, starts off with these guys following Jesus around, confronting him for his disciples picking grain to eat in a field on the Sabbath. They watched him heal a man, uh, heal a man's withered hand, uh, heal another guy who was blind, who's also never spoken before. And they see him do all of this stuff, and their response is, he works for the devil, and we should kill him, right? So that's the context that we have for Jesus' interaction with these guys. So if all they needed was to see a sign right now, they would have already accepted Jesus, right, as the, as the Messiah, as the promised Savior. Uh, but they don't. They don't accept it, right? They only look at what Jesus is doing and how he is doing it and the way, the way he's going about things in a way that they don't particularly like, and they try to say that he's a tool of the devil, right? So they don't really want a sign. They don't want Jesus to prove himself. They want to try to find another way that they can try to accuse him of some kind of wrongdoing. That's their motivation here. Uh, but Jesus knows their motivation, and he does not walk into what they intended to be a trap, although I'm not sure how they were going to trap him with that. Um, but he's not going to fall into it, right? He turns to them, and he calls them wicked and adulterous. That's pretty pointed, right? So I would say it's pretty obvious that uh, it makes sense to call them wicked, right? Jesus is fully aware that this group of people is intending to kill him for healing people, helping people, and doing nothing wrong. I'd say that's pretty categorically wicked. I think we can call it that. Uh, but then he calls them adulterous, this group of people that are plotting to kill him. Um, so why does he say, why does he say that? That's, that's not... Uh, it's not how I would address a group of people that I know we're about to kill me, right? I don't, I don't think the command they're about to violate is do not commit adultery, right? That's, that's, not, their, that's not their goal, right? Uh, but that is what he says to them. And the reason he says this is because he knows what they're doing. He knows their motivation and how it connects to their actions. Um, he knows they have this deep resentment and anger towards him right, because of what he's doing, uh, but they're coming up to him in public, and they're saying, oh, teacher, give us a sign. We want to see you do something. Like, he, he knows that what they're doing is two-faced, right? That's adulterous behavior. They say they want one thing, but they're actually doing something completely different, and Jesus is really familiar uh, with the Old Testament, just like these religious teachers were, and, and you can see throughout the Old Testament, there are different prophets and different poets that that's how they refer to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people when they know what they should be doing or they know what God has asked them to do and they rebel against him or they reject God, the prophets of the time would call them adulterous, right? So he knows what he's doing and the Pharisees know exactly what he means. And so he's, he's referencing the way that Israel's rejected God in the past for the way that the Pharisees are rejecting him now. So they, they're here with this facade, right, that they, they want a sign, they want to believe, that's all they need, when really they're just trying to use something against him. That's what they're doing, right? Um, so they, they have convinced themselves that their way of thinking, their way of doing things, their expectations for Jesus and what he should be doing are so unequivocally correct that anything that gets in the way is evil and wrong and has to be destroyed, Right? And that's what Jesus is, is going to explain next. So look with me back at the passage uh, in verse 39. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who've asked for a sign, and he tells them, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Right? He brings up this Old Testament story that everybody would have been super familiar with at the time. Um, we actually did a whole series on Jonah a couple of years ago. It's on our website. Um, I highly recommend you go and uh, listen through it. It's really helpful. Um, but I think a lot of people, when they think of Jonah, they're like, yeah, the fish and the uh, veggie tails and the choir and the, yeah, I don't know Jonah. Um, but as a quick, you know, 30,000 foot view, um, Jonah was a terrible prophet, right? That's the, that's the main gist of the story. He's basically the worst prophet we'd ever seen. Uh, it's kind of a strange person for Jesus to compare himself to, right? Um, Jonah so badly did not want to do his job that when God asked him to, the first thing he did was get on a boat and go as far as he could the other direction, right? And then he ended up having to go overboard during a storm to save the rest of the crew. A huge fish swallows him. He gets th thrown up where he didn't want to go in the first place, and then he begrudgingly gave one of the shortest and worst sermons in the entire Bible, right? And then the people of Nineveh, very unexpectedly, humbled themselves before God and repented. And you'd think, be like, oh, wow, that's great. And actually what happened was Jonah was so mad about it that he yelled at God for being too loving and begged him to die. That, that is Jonah. <laughs> so, that's an interesting story to reference, right? Uh, in case you missed it, also, this is a side note, the other day, a guy was actually swallowed by a whale in Massachusetts like a week ago. It's crazy. He's going to show up in Nineveh any day now. But <laughs> no, you should look it up later. It was like 40 seconds in a whale, but he did get swallowed by a whale. It's a true story. It's very interesting. Truly biblical form. Um, but for now, let's look at some of the parallels that are uh, in, in this reference that, that Jesus is making. He's, he's drawing some connections here. So he's saying that in a way, he's kind of like Jonah. Um, he's saying, I know you're going to kill me, right? And I'm, I know I'm going to be dead for three days, similar to how Jonah was in the belly of this fish for three days, functionally dead at that point. Um, so he's, he's drawing that parallel, but then he follows it up by saying, um, that this wicked pagan nation from history, they, they repented at Jonah's preaching and they're gonna have more to show for themselves on the last day than these Pharisees will, right? Because they repented. That's what he's saying. Think about the gravity of what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees right now, these religious leaders and how they must have felt, right? They all know about the Ninevites. They know that they were, they were a wicked they were a wicked people group. They were evil. They were like evil embodied at, the, at that time. And so they know exactly what it is. And he says they repented with a four-word sermon, right? He said, you Pharisees, you've got miracles. You've got signs. You've got Jesus in front of you. You've got multiple sermons, and yet you still are not repenting, right? He's saying, considering what happened to Jonah, the Pharisees have no excuse whatsoever, Right? But their hearts are so hardened towards Jesus that they refuse to repent. They refuse to see him for who he actually is. Okay, so the Pharisees, they ask for a sign. They don't get one. They don't want to see one. They just want to, they've already made up their minds about what they're going to do to Jesus. And Jesus sees right through it. 
And he said, the, the only sign is the sign of Jonah, or the only sign you get is the fact that you're going to kill me, and you know it. Right? He knows this is coming. He knows that's their plan, but he still is pursuing his mission. Right? He's still pursuing people. He's still teaching. He's still healing. He's still loving people, knowing exactly what these guys are going to do to him. He knows they're going to kill him for it. Right? But he does that because, because he loves us. Right? He loves his creation so much that he'll go to the ultimate end for us, knowing that that was coming. Right? In the face of faithlessness, Jesus remains faithful. Right? And so he says, this is the only sign that you're going to get. But what's interesting to me at this point in the story or in his interaction, um, Jesus does not say, I am condemning you. Not at all in this passage. He doesn't say it. Instead, he says that their own actions have condemned them. Right? And we just saw it says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Right? Jesus says, I don't have to. You've, you've already done it for yourselves in rejecting me. And he goes on in verse 42, so keep reading with me. He says, the queen of the south will rise up or rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So a really short history lesson for that one. Um, if you're not super familiar with 1 Kings, which a lot of people aren't, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, this is a reference to 1 Kings chapter 10, right? The queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, was this queen who was uh, referred to as a seeker. Um, so she didn't worship the God of Israel, but she was curious about him, right? She had, she had questions um, about some of the things that she had heard. And she heard that King Solomon was this incredibly wise king who worshiped the God of Israel. And so she decided, I'm going to make this long journey to meet this person over miles and miles to ask him some of these questions. And he answers her questions, right? In 1 Kings, we, we see that they have this interaction, and, and we're led to believe in that passage that, that she begins following God. So she was seeking out answers. She was seeking the truth. And then Jesus is telling the Pharisees, who are asking him for signs, he said, if you were truly seeking answers... You, you, already, you already would believe. If you were truly seeking the things that you have seen, you would already believe, right? So Solomon answered her questions as she was seeking and she believed, but now something far greater than Solomon is here and you still don't. Um, so this, this queen, she was truly seeking answers, right? She asked for things because she actually wanted to know, and she heard it, and she accepted it, right? But it, it says, just like the Ninevites, that this queen at the, at the time of judgment will rise up and condemn this generation. So the Pharisees, they are so consumed by and wrapped up in the way that they think Jesus should behave or should act or the things that he should be doing that when he actually shows up, and he begins his ministry how he planned it, they hate him for it. And so um, at this point in the passage, this is where it takes a little bit of a weird turn. Um, we're at the haunted house spot, right? I know you guys have been patiently waiting to figure out what's going on there. Um, so take a look with me at verse 43. It says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. 
Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So what on earth is Jesus talking about here? Like this is, this is kind of confusing. The first thing I want to point out though, um, Jesus is, is using one of his most frequently used tools in this instance, right? He is not giving like a brief seminar on exorcisms. That is not what's happening. He's still talking about the same thing he's been talking about with these other examples that he's been giving. He's just using a parable, right, to do it. So this is not like a how-to on on exorcisms. Um, And uh, as an aside, in a couple weeks, we're actually going to be talking all about parables in uh, in chapter 13 of Matthew. So we'll unpack some of those ideas then as well. Um, So for anyone who's wondering how I got there, and how, uh, how, I, how I know that this is a parable, um, the last line in, in verse 45 highlights this fact, right? And it also, it brings out Jesus' main point with it. He says all of these things, and then he comes back to, that is how it will be with this wicked generation, right? He's giving this warning, this parable, to the same generation that he's been talking to this whole time, that he's been talking about this whole time. Um, he, he's using language and illustrations that would be understood by everyone who was listening at the time, right? So basically what he's saying is if a person or the house in this parable uh, is liberated from some kind of evil, it's a good thing, right? It's, that's a good thing. The house is swept clean and put in order. That's great. That's an improvement. Um, but he says the newly emptied house remains unoccupied, or if it remains unoccupied, we read that the underlying evil returns, right? But this time it's far worse than it was before because it lives in this, in this swept up and cleaned up house, right? And so Jesus is saying the final condition is worse than before. Does that make sense? Hopefully. It will continue to make sense. Um, so this is something that may seem like change on the surface, right? This house is more swept up. It's clean. Uh, but... It's, it's not actually changed. On the surface, it looks cleaner, but there isn't real change happening, right? It's kind of like deciding that, that I want to be more healthy, right? So I go, I'm going to go follow a bunch of workout accounts on Instagram and watch all these fitness transformation videos on, uh, on YouTube or, or put inspirational quotes on all my mirrors and then just stop there. Or even worse, you'll be like me and act like you're being very nice and going to get your wife Chick-fil-A when secretly you're eating two sandwiches on the way home. It's a true story. We've talked about it. She just left the room, so she doesn't know that I said that up here. But, (laughs) well, she knows. All right. So on the outside, I made it look like I wanted to be more fit, more active, when really I was like down in 1,000 calories before I even got home. And then I would eat dinner. It's it's a problem. But you can see that the, the final condition is worse. Even though on the outside, it seemed like there was this, this good thing happening, this good change, right? So it's just uh, doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing, right? Dodging any real change and just replacing it with other stuff or putting up smoke screens in the way. Um, so I saw a, a pretty clear example of this at another church that I used to be a part of in South Carolina. Um, there was this program called Recovery. 
which was specifically for people who were uh, battling addictions or, or sin patterns in their life that they felt like they just couldn't break and couldn't beat. And there was this one guy there, and we'll call him James. Um, he, he was going through this, but he was also going through AA at the time, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so throughout the process, um, he, he ended up not, not drinking, which is good, but he replaced his obsession with drinking and his obsession with alcohol with a new obsession of how many days can I go without drinking, right? That became the thing that he was, the, the one thing that he was obsessing over was, was how many days he could stay sober. So he became fully defined by not drinking, right? That, that's, what it, that's what it became. His identity became wrapped up in his own determination and his own willpower. He replaced his alcoholism with achievement, and so on the surface, there are things that look like they were a lot better, but the idol that he had in his life stayed the same. He still based his life on, on the things within his immediate control. He never replaced his dependence on himself with Jesus, right? So he just tried to white-knuckle his way, way through everything, and, and he would inevitably fall back into what that other temptation was at time, because that, that's something that he had control over. Right? But at times, he, he was under the impression that he was doing great. Right? He, he had left it all behind him. It was gone, swept, clean, put in order. But he was blind to the fact that he was still completely enslaved to sin. Right? He had cast out this one demon, so to speak, from his life, which was alcoholism, but he hadn't replaced it with Jesus. So he, he actually became more susceptible to even greater demons in the, in the future. Right? So to say, to say no to something uh, that is evil or something that's destructive, to truly say no to that, you have to be saying yes to something that is new and better. Right? If you're not filling this clean and unoccupied house with a new and better occupant, all you've done is made a more comfortable and convenient place for evil to hide. Right? And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to his listeners. Right here, He's telling them that, that he is here, he's in the flesh, he's pushing, pushing out darkness, pushing on, pushing back evil everywhere that he goes, right? He's cleaning up all these houses, so to speak. Um, and, and like I said earlier, he knows that these people are going to kill him, right? And he knows that after the resurrection, he is going to ascend back into heaven, and there will be all these houses that are left empty and cleaned and swept up. Right? And all these people are going to have to choose what to do about Jesus in their lives at that point. Right? People, people can choose to let Jesus have this uh, surface level, external, superficial effect on your life where, where you look cleaned up or you look put together or, or you look righteous on the outside without actually letting him create any heart level change in you. Or, or they don't invite him into the house. They don't invite him to live there to shape the very foundation of the house, to fill up every part of that space. Right? So we, we, can't, we can't keep replacing idols in our lives with, with more things that are just con going to continue to fail us and continue to let us down. Right? Maybe, maybe we realize that we're, uh, that we're idolizing romance or marriage or the idea of dating somebody. Maybe we realize that that's something that we're idolizing. And so instead of that, we're like, you know what? I'm just going to pour everything into my career. Right? 
I'm going to be 100% committed to that. I'm going to run from the idol of romance that I have in my life. And then career becomes your new obsession. Right? Or, or maybe, uh, maybe from there you realize, oh, this is really taking a toll on me. Like, this is too much. Uh, for, for my life, like I, I'm burnt out, I'm feeling like I can't keep going at this pace, right? And then we're like, you know what? I'm going to obsess over uh, mental and physical health, right? That's what I'm lacking now. So I'm not going to be obsessed with my career anymore. I'm going to focus on all of these things for me, right? So we, we constantly run from, from one idol to another, full speed ahead, full speed toward things that are good things. Those are not all inherently bad things, but we, we run full speed towards those things and we just leave Jesus out of it entirely. And those things, while being good things that we can enjoy, will ultimately fail us and let us down. Uh, I've also seen this happen in the church Right? Sometimes we take, uh, we take things that are a part of church and we try to use that to replace Jesus in our lives. I've seen this happen uh, with the idea of community. Right? We talk a lot about community here. We think it's super important, but we can't equate that with God. But, but we do that sometimes, right? Community is a great thing. It should point us back to God. It should be a place where we can be honest and open and people can encourage us in truth back to God, but it it can't take the place of God, right? And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but uh, just because we're involved in community or just because we grew up in a Christian house or grew up going to church, any of those things, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're automatically following Jesus, right? You can't just surround ourselves with people who have a relationship with Jesus and just accept, assume it's gonna be projected onto you, right? like a vicarious salvation or something. That's not how it works. I, I heard uh, Marcus told me a phrase the other day. He said, God doesn't have grandkids, right? You can't take someone else's relationship with Jesus and that, that just be a replacement for a relationship with Jesus in itself, right? So if we're involved in community or, or life group or other things for the sole purpose of just having friends or having people around us or whatever other reason it might be that's not following Jesus, then we've ultimately just replaced them with something else entirely, right? And this is Jesus's warning in this passage. He's talking to these Pharisees whose very lives are built on the idea of appearing righteous, following these rules, following these commands, having a really clean house, right? But he's telling them, because they've rejected him while thinking that they've achieved righteousness on their own because of the things that they could accomplish or because of the image that they could put on, they're actually worse off than somebody's, somebody whose house is in total shambles from the outside. Right? He's saying is if all you do is allow Jesus and Scripture to have a superficial impact on your life instead of fully accepting him as the central part of your life, what your life is built on, He's saying it's better that you never heard of me in the first place. Right? So following Jesus is not just about all the things that we can abstain from or all the things that we can avoid or all the, the commands that we can follow. That's, that's not what it is. If that's all it is, then our pride and our self-righteousness and our cynicism is going to be so much worse than when we started 
Right, right now, there, there are people in our world, probably people in this room, who have successfully eliminated certain vices from their lives, right? Maybe alcoholism, sleeping around, drugs, whatever else. They may have taken those things out of their lives and cleaned those up, and they've convinced themselves that because they've cleaned themselves up, they're good, right? They're set. But following Jesus is not just about the absence of sin, It's not about the absence of sin. It's about the presence of God. And because some people don't have that, their squeaky clean lives are actually far worse than they were to begin with because they'll never think that they need to repent now. They think that they've made it for themselves. So Jesus, uh, in classic Jesus form, right, has some pretty harsh words for the Pharisees, what we just saw. Uh, But here's what I want to make sure that we see today, and we may have been feeling some of this already, but he's not only talking to the Pharisees. It can be be easy uh, to read passages like this through our modern lens and our previous experience, our previous exposure to Scripture, and think of the Pharisees as like, yeah, the Pharisees are the bad guys. They're evil. They're they're self-righteous, and they're, they're, you know, we think of them like, oh, you foolish Pharisees. How could you not understand, you know? Like, it's easy to remove ourselves from the picture entirely. We think things like, oh, I would never act like the Pharisees, right? Oh, how could you not understand what he's doing? I can't believe the Pharisees would think something like that. Or I'm so glad I'm not like those Pharisees, right? Does that language sound familiar? Can you think of anyone else that Jesus interacts with in Scripture who says stuff like that? It's the Pharisees. Right? And if we're all honest, I think that we could insert ourselves into some very similar situations and mindsets. I know I can. Uh, and anyone that says they can't probably is just in denial. <laughs> right? As much as we don't want to admit it, the mentality of the Pharisees shows up all the time in our lives. Now, it probably comes out in different ways. Right? I'm fairly confident in saying no one in this room had a first-hand impact on Jesus being murdered. I don't think any of you were there. So obviously there's going to be some differences, but it certainly shows up in our lives. And just like Jesus said, it can be so dangerous and it can be so sneaky. Like we, we often do this thing where um, whether we would come right out and say it or not, which we probably wouldn't, so that's why I'm saying it for you, uh, we essentially put Jesus on the witness stand in our life, right? We put Jesus on trial. We demand that, that he do something in us or for us or around us exactly how we want it or exactly how we expect it in order for us to faithfully follow him, right? In moments of doubt or in difficult circumstances or times of struggle, at times, we functionally reserve the right to not actually be committed to Jesus until he comes through on whatever the thing is that we want. Right? Or maybe it's not the thing that we're asking him to do. Maybe it's our response to what's already happening in our lives. It's our resistance to Jesus because he isn't currently doing what we expect. Or we, he's not doing uh, what, what we want or what we think he should be doing in our lives. And we get mad at him for it. Yeah, but, but then we have what scripture actually says. 
about the real Jesus, right? We, we see his plans for the world. We see what he's all about. And at some point, we have to decide if the real Jesus is enough for us to follow him, even when we have to reorient our expectations. And the biggest thing that I, I want people to hear from, from me and from Scripture today uh, is, is just yes. Like, yes, it is worth it. Right? Nothing has ever been more worth it. Nothing will ever be more worth it. Right? The work of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for you, for me, for, for all of us, is so unbelievably worth it. It's worth everything, right? The transformative power of the Holy Spirit offered to us is worth it, right? So, so instead of, of constantly putting the God of the universe on trial based on our temporary circumstances and constantly asking him for sign after sign after sign, we should be looking at the sign that he already gave us, right? The sign of the cross where Jesus gave up his life for you because of how much he loved you. And because he wanted us to be reconciled to him and be filled by his spirit regardless of our circumstances. Right? We, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be demanding these constant signs from God. We should be viewing our circumstances and our lives through the sign we've already been given and with the hope that we've received in that. Right? We don't need more signs. We need to decide if we're going to live in light of the perfect and complete sign that we already have. All right, so I want us to do today, uh, just as we wrap up, um, I'm going to take some time uh, and we're, just, we're going to spend some time praying uh, and reflecting and just kind of thinking on some of this stuff. So I'm going to have the musicians come back up um, on stage for us. And you can go ahead and put away your Bible or uh, your notebooks or if you, you know, journaling is your thing and you want to do that, you're welcome to keep those out. But I want us to, to bow our heads Close your eyes, um, whatever, whatever that looks like for you to be able to focus. Um, so what I want to do to respond uh, is, is pray and be open and, and honest um, about where we are, right? And about the things that, that we uh, may be looking to in our lives that end up just being cheap replacements for other idols. Um, and so as, as we do that, as everyone's heads are bowed, eyes are closed, um, I want to bring everyone back, um, back to something. I, I know that a lot of what we have talked about today can feel really heavy and can feel really weighty. And sometimes, if you're anything like me, it can feel pretty defeating right? Because I'm, I'm motivated by what I can accomplish for myself so much of the time. And sometimes you can even, even feel stuck, right, at times not knowing what to do next or where to go. But what I want to remind us of is just like Jeff talked about last week, um, I want to remind you if the Spirit is convicting you, that means he, that he's moving in you. Right? The Holy Spirit is, is active and moving and working. It means that he's, he's present 
And he's working to, to try to help reveal the ways that we have looked to idols or looked to ourselves instead of looking to Jesus. Right? The Pharisees had Jesus in the flesh right in front of them. They saw the signs. They heard him teach. But their hearts were hardened. But the Holy Spirit is here and has transformative power. Right? Transformative power for your life. He can, he can move in you. He can move into that house and fill up that space. And listen, not only can he do that, but he's the only thing that can. He's the only thing that can fill that space and be what, be what satisfies you fully. Right? And, and if that's the, 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 the Holy Spirit moving and working in you and convicting different areas of your life, that is something to lean into. That is something to, to continue to press into and ask the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal areas of your life where we're replacing Jesus with other things. And if that's not where you are yet, um, like I said, my encouragement to you is that the Holy Spirit can soften your heart too. Right? He can soften your heart. He, we, we, can, we can pray and talk to God. We can ask the Holy Spirit to fill us up. We can pray for that to be revealed to us. And maybe for the first time today, right? Maybe today is the first time that you've realized that, that you may be filling up your house with things that could never actually fill it or were never meant to, right? And, and this is something that we can ask the Holy Spirit to move into and to move through, right? And like we talked about earlier, community can be such an amazingly helpful way for this to happen, right? We, we don't want to replace Jesus with social outlets, but we also can't fall into the trap of avoiding the, Holy, the voice of the Holy Spirit and other followers of Jesus, right? So uh, I, w- I want us to spend the rest of this time just praying through these things, praying through the ways um, that we might be adding more things to our lives and pushing Jesus to the wayside. And I, I want us to, after this, I, I, would, I would love for you to invite other people into that conversation with you, right? Invite the people in your life group. Invite the people around you. Invite the people who are trusted followers of Jesus in your life to speak into your life. Ask them to ask the Spirit to speak into your life, right? Speak into your, into your foundations, to try to help you see where you may be resisting the transformative work of Jesus. Those are people that he has put in your life empowered by the Spirit to help with that transformative work. And that's what we are all invited into. And that's something that we can find rest in. We don't have to continue chasing down other things on our own strength, getting burned out again and again and let down over and over. We can find that rest in Jesus and what he accomplished for us and the sign that he gave us on the cross when he gave up his life for us. So let's pray.